I'm going to focus on the last part of that reading because I think we've probably heard a few sermons about loving the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and your neighbour as yourself. And if you haven't, uh, I'll do that next time. But I wanted to pick up on this lesser preached on part of the scripture that we've just read, which is where Jesus turns the tables on his inquirers. And Jesus was engaged by the religious leaders in many situations and occasions and they wanted to debate him. Sometimes their plot was to somehow trap him or trip him up. Sometimes they seemed to want to enlist him on their side of a particular argument. And every now and then Jesus would just flip it around and start asking questions of those who were asking questions of him. And in this particular occasion, Jesus highlights a a fairly obscure verse from the start of Psalm 110 to challenge the assumptions that the Christ was simply the son of David. Jesus appears to be hinting that the Christ uh, might be much more than just a man. In my mind, this begs the question, why did Jesus avoid openly and boldly declaring his own divinity throughout his ministry because you kind of think it would have been quite easy to clear that misunderstanding up so I've thought about that and here's what I want to tell you I think it would be easy for us to imagine how a person might be treated if they got around telling people that they were in fact God you can think about that right When I was in the early days of my ministry at Manly, a fellow named John, who had a fairly wild beard and a bit of a glint in his eye, came to the church and began to prophesy. Uh, It was the start of our partnership with a Pentecostal group, so I'd become practised at rolling with various kind of strange punches. And uh, John seemed to know the scriptures quite well, so I thought I should at least engage him and find out more. And I soon realised that John thought he was the only true voice of God. And this to me indicated he was not a real prophet. Uh, he was probably mentally unwell. And as it turned out, he was a regular at Manly's East Wing psych ward where he was known by the nickname John the Prophet. So he had a pretty, pretty well-established identity in that way. Um, if he had come to me and said, I am God, I would have immediately assumed that he was mentally unwell, right? You probably would too if someone came up to you and said, well, guess what? I'm God. And I tell you what, we are much kinder today than they probably were back in the first century with this kind of thing. Today we would medicate someone, perhaps lock them up, That kind of thing doesn't sound very kind, unless, of course, you're in America where you might become the president. But um, our response is likely far more compassionate than the response that a person in the first century Palestine would have received if they had made the claim that they were divine. We simply assume a person is insane or deluded. The claim of divinity in first century Palestine was blasphemous. And if you're unfamiliar with blasphemy, in first century Palestine it was a capital crime amongst the Jews. If you made the claim to divinity, you had better have the power to back yourself up or at least a larger army than anybody else to protect you with. And this was not an academic matter or even really a religious matter in a funny kind of way for most 
traditional societies, if you were going to challenge the deities, you were going to upset the apple cart. People feared the forces that were bigger than they could understand and bigger than they could manage. And those forces were in the domain of the gods. And so the gods were to be feared and you did your bits of worship and so forth to placate the gods, to make sure they were happy or not unhappy with you at the very least. If you got around saying that you were divine, nobody likes a rival, right? And so making a claim like that had real-world consequences in the minds of a first-century Palestinian person. Anyone making that sort of claim would have been dealt with very efficiently. Not only so, but for any claim on divinity to be truly compelling, it has to arise from within the person who is seeing the other as the divine one. That is to say, it doesn't really matter how much the person themselves thinks that they are divine. In the end, it's the other people that need to be convinced. And Jesus not only wanted to allow conviction to develop in the hearts of his followers, he wanted that conviction to have a shape and a content that was radically different to the popular assumptions about divinity. And this meant giving his followers time and space to discover who he was and avoid playing into their already established assumptions. So he doesn't come out and say, guess what, I'm God. He wants people to think about who he is and draw some conclusions. He does give some hints though, and they're pretty clear hints when you think about it. Um, Towards the end of Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 22, when uh, Jesus has been arrested and is brought before the Sanhedrin, the religious council, if you like, uh, in his travesty of a so-called trial, he offers this rather clear statement. Uh, I'm reading from verse 66 of Luke 22 where it says, When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. And they said, what further need do we have of testimony? We have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. So it's fairly clear, although it's still the son of God rather than God. And there's also, uh, during the unfolding of Jesus' ministry, other little hints like um, in Mark chapter 2, a story that's also relayed in Matthew and Luke, Before healing a paralysed man, Jesus pronounces the man's sins to be forgiven. And the scribes, who were experts in the content of the scripture, were quite rightly outraged by this. Why? Because sin is an offence against God. It is only God who can forgive sin. The scribes understood Jesus, quite rightly, was putting himself in the place of God. And then we get to this kind of convoluted little interaction here that we're looking at this morning. An odd conversation with the Pharisees 
um, that may not seem very clear to us, but it was another example of Jesus hinting at something that he wasn't quite ready to say directly. Because the first century Jew did not assume the Messiah to be divine. To have a divine mandate, yes, but to be divine, no. To be God incarnate, they didn't really have a category for that. Um, Deifying mere mortals was something that the Gentiles did. But the Jews, they knew that that was just egomaniacal men like the emperors claiming divinity unto themselves. In Israel they worshipped the one true God, not mere mortals. Jesus here draws the attention of his community's theologians to Psalm 110 and the fact that King David refers to the Messiah as my Lord. And in traditional societies, the elders are always regarded with more honour than their offspring. So this is something that was a bit strange. and like It was really important to regard your elders with honour because that's what held traditional societies strong and together down through history. But King David refers to his offspring as my Lord and this creates a bit of a quandary and just enough to open you to wonder something interesting is going on here. And if you're sitting there going, yeah, so what? What does it matter? Does it matter whether Jesus is a messenger from God or whether he's actually God? Who cares? Well, actually, there is a huge difference. Identity really matters to us. I'm aware that when I visit somebody who's a member of Mustard Seed and I'm the minister... I bring a sense of the congregation with me. And people kind of get a sense of that. Maybe not so much today. I think our culture's a bit more uprooted from some of that traditional stuff. But it used to be that for some people, I remember this when I was a parishioner, some people didn't feel they'd been visited by the church until the minister came and visited them, even if loads of other people had visited them previously. Identity does matter. And it's also interesting to think about how divinity functions for us as well. Divinity is about ultimate sovereignty, the power within which all other expressions of power sit. Divinity is that which sets the parameters of our reality. Another way of expressing this is divinity is where the buck stops. There is no higher authority to whom to appeal. If the divine sovereign says it is so, then it is so. If the Christ is not divine but merely the messenger of the divine, then we rightly look for a higher authority to confirm the message, as it were. If Christ is divine, then his authority is ultimate. And this becomes really critical when Jesus becomes the person who flips the script on some of our deepest held assumptions. Many of Jesus' teachings, and more particularly his actions really, challenge the assumptions not just of his day or his religion, but challenge our instincts regarding the way the world works. When Jesus says things like, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, or indeed in the Beatitudes, blessed are you who are poor, 
for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh, in Luke chapter 6. These sayings are counter to our assumptions, counter to, to what we know to be true, in a sense, of our everyday real world. Do we not all instinctually want to save our own lives? I do. Absolutely. Ask the poor or the hungry how blessed they feel. Are they blessed? In what sense? These sayings are counter to our assumptions. They don't make sense to us. The real world isn't like that in our minds. They can only make sense when the way we make meaning changes. For example, our assumption is that the person who amasses the largest pile of valuables is the winner in this life. And if you don't think you believe that, just be a bit more honest with yourself. I mean, we all don't believe it a little bit and believe it a lot, I think. This understanding relies on the save-yourself matrix of meaning because the valuables are things we enjoy, yes, but they're also, importantly, things that help us to survive. We're always looking after our own survival and comfort. Yet they cannot carry the weight of meaning for us. We know that too. We have a crisis of meaning when we collect so much stuff we have enough for several lifetimes in many, in many places but fail to find a purpose that could sustain even one lifetime. And Jesus offers us a purpose that will not only sustain our life now but will live on in all eternity. And that purpose is to serve others. Hang on. Not to be one who is a slave who has no choice, but one who has had their sense of reality so turned upside down that we've come to genuinely believe that it is more blessed to give than to receive. That it is richer to give our life to someone rather than to take someone else's. See, Jesus understood the challenge of persuading anyone of his divinity. He dropped hints and then he let his life speak for itself. And this was so eloquent that his closest followers could come to only one conclusion. The Christ is divine. The Christ is the highest sovereign. The Christ is the ultimate authority. And this is a vital realisation when the Christ starts to change around what we regard to be most important and what we assume are the ultimate or unarguable realities that form the contours of our life. If Jesus is not God, then we can ignore his opinion on what is important. On the other hand, if Jesus is God, we are fools to ignore him. And so we shall not ignore him. Rather, we will gather around Jesus' table in a moment, for he wants us to share with him. And as we prepare to do so, we're going to hear a beautiful song, Breathe on me, breath of God.